When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ana Vesiana Suarez is much beloved by all of us who know her and have been reading her column in the Miami Herald for many, many years. Syndicated by the Tribune Company, her work is described this way. Anna explores the human experience by touching on the private issues and public events that shape our lives. She pays particular attention to the social issues affecting women and families often providing poignant tales of the immigrant experience as she tries to make sense of a world hurtling forward at breakneck speed with little regard for its past. And now, Anna brings this sensibility to her new novel, Dulcinea, a reimagining of Cervantes. Dulcinea is a brilliant approach to Don Quixote from the point of view of the other woman writes Armando Lucas Correa. And this from Diana Abu Jabber. An exquisite brocade of history and imagination, Dulcinea weaves a captivating tale of passion, betrayal, and adventure, and a fresh feminist perspective on the classic hero's journey. Anna Vesiana Suarez is my guest on this edition of The Literary Life. We recorded it in person at Books and Books in Carl Gables, Florida. I want to welcome a really, really, really good friend on to the literary life today, and that's Ana Vesiana Suarez, who, among a lot of different things that she does in the literary world, she has just come out with a wonderful, wonderful new novel called Dulcinea. Um, it's a retelling um of not, it, it's a retelling, uh, kind of a retelling of Don Quixote, uh, where she is telling it from Dulcinea's point of view, more or less. Right. Is that a good way of describing yes. it? Yeah. How would you describe it better? Well, I. It's really the story of this wealthy Barcelona woman who falls in love with this impoverished poet soldier. Miguel Cervantes, because of course, writers and poets have always been impoverished, so why should it be different? And their relationship, of course, is uh, is forbidden for, for many reasons, but it overcomes these obstacles until he renders her as Dulcinea, as this lowly Dulcinea. And it kind of exposes her to, to read ridicule but also it proves to many of her uh, her friends and relatives that yes they had had this illicit affair so they this relationship breaks up until she gets this dead Beth note from Miguel Cervantes living in Madrid saying he wants to see her one last time and by that time, he's a famous novelist. And by then, still p- poor, 
but he's uh, a famous, has had this bestseller, you know, with thanks to this lowly Dulcinea. Who is not lowly at all. Who is not lowly. In my book, you know, she, you know, she's well-educated, comes from money, is an artist herself, a painter. So not at all like the Dulcinea of Don Quixote. Now, it's so interesting as a bookseller and as an English major, I read Don Quixote probably a long, long, long time ago. But also a long, long, long time ago, I saw Man of La Mancha, which is kind of what always kind of um, supersedes, uh, you know, my understanding of the novel Don Quixote. So the question I have for you is, where did all this come from? Why Dulcinea and why now? Well, I was in 10th grade in a Spanish four class reading Don Quixote in the old Spanish. And I think reading is being generous because it was a struggle. And it, I think it wasn't just me. And Spanish is my first language. It's actually the language I first began writing when I wanted to be a writer. So it, it wasn't that it was Spanish. It was just old Spanish. And I always thought, why is this Dulcinea kind of in the shadows. She's in, she's really at the edges in the sidelines of this story. He never really makes an appearance. So, you know, as, as a kid, I thought, I thought even then I wanted to be a writer. I'm going to one day write her story, give her a voice and do this. Well, you know, we dream and I never got around to it for many reasons. And part of it, I think quite honestly is, um, fear. I knew nothing about golden age Spain and I knew it would require a lot of research and um, a skill in recreating this lost world that I wasn't confident enough. But I think also to write this book, you have to live a little life because it's story. It's really a story about regrets and it's a story about second chances and opportunities missed. And I think you have to be well into middle age as a minimum to be able to face those and be honest with yourself, which is part of that story. You know, so it's a kind of a dual timeline. It's her travel across Spain from Barcelona to Madrid and it's alternated with chapters of her life and her relationship to Cervantes. But, you know, it's so impressive that you were thinking of this story when you were in high school. And there is a lot that happened between high school and the writing of this novel. Oh, yes. <laughs> and it's interesting to me because I know a lot of what happened uh, as a writer that even back then in high school, you were imagining what stories to tell and which stories an audience might be really interested in. Does that mean that in high school that you were studying journalism as well? I actually began um, in as a senior to study journalism, and that was at the suggestion of an English teacher. Uh, nobody in my family has been a writer. Nobody is creative in, 
well, I think they're creative, just not in the creative arts. So I had uncles who are doctors. My father was a CPA. Everybody's math, very math oriented as I am. And in, in fact, I went and preparing a, a talk through some, some photos to use in a presentation. And I found, you know, my mother writing in my baby book, two conflicting things saying, oh, she shows an early aptitude for numbers. Hmm. And then my high school award being in mathematics, not language arts, not English, not anything of that. But then she would write, she has an imagination and likes to tell stories, she could be a novelist. Of course, it's one thing to write it, because when I told my parents that I really wanted to be a writer, and their reaction was, you're going to starve to death. You know, why do you do that? Why don't you choose to do something else and you can kind of, you know, dabble in this on, on the side? But I've managed somehow to live off my writing, so... Well, not just somehow, but for those of you who don't know, Anna Anna is been a columnist for the Miami Herald for how many years now? Oh, 30 years. I've had over 40 years as a journalist. And a beloved columnist. And the thing that Anna does most, and she does it so beautifully, is she writes about her own experiences and provokes a kind of empathetic response in so many of her readers. I can only imagine the kind of letters that you get back. Yeah, they're they're interesting because usually the most mail I get is when I write something that's deeply personal, not something that I think, oh, this is going to change somebody's thinking or any of that. It's just the deeply personal. And I think it's a way of giving voice to the ordinary because my life is relatively ordinary. You know, I face what a lot of other people face, but I can put it into words. And that's been really a developed skill. It's not something that I had early on. And people say, oh, yes, yes, this is exactly how I feel. Like I recently wrote one on long distance grandparenting and how hard that has been for me and how, you know, when my kids left, I didn't feel any of this empty nest feeling. I was like celebrating. Oh my gosh, I have all this time. But when they, I always imagined they would come back, they would raise their children close to me and we would live happily ever after. And some of them did for a while and then they moved out of Miami for better opportunities. And not being part of the day-to-day -day life of my grandchildren has just surprised me by how much that has affected me. And I, all I do is I, you know, I'm always planning my trips. What are my re professional responsibilities and how can I plan my next one and coordinate because they live in four different cities. So I'm just making the rounds. How many children do you have? Yeah. Well, I had five. I so, you recently had a tragedy as well. Yes. So my daughter, who was the only girl, died. And then I have four boys, and as I said, they, four men, since some of them are middle-aged and they have uh, gray in their beard, so I should say, you know, middle-aged for the oldest ones. So they... How many grandchildren? And I have, the ninth was born That's right amazing. before the... 
Well, right before the book came it out. Came and out. and your youngest, who's a friend of my own son's, who's thirty, uh, was saying, you know, when at the event the other night was saying, they just seem to keep popping out oh, yes. in our family. The kids just seem to be coming. Yeah, and and it's a happy time, but it's hard because what I have found is that the it's the day to day where you build those bonds with children, especially because I have one granddaughter, my daughter's daughter, who still lives in in Miami. And for a while, it was great. You know, she would call me, take her here, take her there for the store where father couldn't take her. Well, now she's almost 14. She's going to be 14 in a few days. And, you know, I'm no longer interesting. I'm kind of boring. So I'm only important if she wants to go to Sephora or she wants to be dropped off somewhere. She'll come back to you, I know. I know. This She'll is what I back. hope. And, you know, she's and I got the coolest cool. grandmother around. I can tell her that if she's listening. I can remember when you came to our bookshop for The Chin Kiss King, which was your first novel. Yes. And that was a very different novel than Dulcinea. Oh, right? yeah. But you had still, I mean, imagine this if you can, uh, everyone listening, that here's a woman who writes a column. At that time, you were writing how many columns a week was it? It was Two columns, they were different. The second column was more of a local reported column. So there were two columns that she was writing a week. And kind of on the side, she was writing this very major novel called The Chin Kiss King, which I believe was published by Farrar Strauss, Strauss if I'm yes. not mistaken. And that was a very different kind of novel, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. It was more personal, I believe. Yes, it was. Um, again, that was something that I had long wanted to. My uh, middle sister, my late sister, had had a, a child with a handicap, a trisomy 18. And we had all lived with this. My mom, who also helped raise my children, would take care of, um, of this nephew. And um, trisomy 18 children, they're a very complicated medical medically anyway he died and i know all the things that she went through and i thought i wanted to write something about motherhood from a different perspective and what could be more demanding than raising a handicapped child where you you already know what the end is going to be um and that's what this and there was some magical realism involved because it was really, because it's such an intense novel, it's very difficult to write without that. I mean, sometimes reality is a lot tougher than anything you can invent. Well, and, and you, I mean, it's a beautiful novel. And I remember when it came out, it was beautifully published. And it's just, it was a, you know, you're, you're, you, you write, your writing is like butter. You write beautifully. Thank you. And and but what also and I, what also happens in your work? Um, and I read an article that you an essay that you wrote a few weeks ago about writing in the middle of tragedy, right? Mm -hmm. And and there has been a fair amount of tragedy in your life that you've experienced. Yes. And for you to maintain this kind of incredible optimism and 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 this credible sense of being present uh, is kind of pretty, pretty. It, it's something that I've always respected 
so much in you. And I've always admired that you've been able to do that. Nothing seems, I mean, I'm sure things get you down, but you seem to be able to process it and in some way overcome it. And in the writing of this book, you had to overcome a couple of very, very difficult right. things. Right. And, and part of it, I, I think is, you know, I'm very good at putting things in compartments. And I think once I begin to write, I always say, if I can get past that first hour of resistance where you just like, oh my gosh, why am I doing this? Then I'm fine because you fall into that world. You kind of inhabit the personality of your characters and you move on. And journalism helps you in that. You know, you can't wait for inspiration. You've got to write. It's a job and it's a job that pays the bills. But um, this essay I, I wrote that uh, it was a website that asked me was writing through grief and that over time, um, having lost, uh, you know, my first husband died of a heart attack at 37. And, you know, I had five children at, at home. And, but you had no other choice. But I also think, you know, my parents, uh, I owe a lot to my parents in the sense that my parents, you know, had to do all these things and my mother especially had to put up with so much. And she just, you know, she was always, like I said, she would, you know, pick herself up, dust herself off and move forward. And if it was on her knees, it was on her knees as long as you were moving forward. And I've told my kids, I hope that if there's any lesson that I've imparted to you is that because we all, you know, we don't know what another person is going through. We really don't know. Sometimes, you know, you meet people and you think they have this perfect life and then you just scratch a little and you think, oh my God. When did your parents come over from Cuba? What year was that? Well, uh, in 61. So what happened, my, my dad went underground um, in the anti-Castro movement and my mom who had Spanish citizenship because she had been born in Spain. Um, so my mother took the three oldest kids to Spain, and we lived there for a year with her with her family and, and my father's side of the family, too. And when I come to think of it, she was 28 years old. She had left Spain after the Civil War, also as an exile, and here she is, a second time returning back to her country and the family that had stayed there and then sizable family. And then once my dad leaves, he was, I always say, one of the original Balseros. He leaves with my maternal grandmother, who was also in the underground anti-Castro and oh. used to keep the arms in her apartment. So I mean, I don't really have to invent anything. <laughs> What year did he come? And he came in 61, so... And then you met in Miami. And we we actually met him in New York and then came in Miami. And like all Cubans at that time, everybody was just, you know, this was just a way station. Everybody was going to move back. And here we are. And you were six or seven. Yes, What I are your six. earliest memories of that? Well, I remember we, um, you know, a lot of different things... In 
I know when people, other relatives would come from Cuba and before they were relocated, they would stay with us. So, you know, it was, it was that. And then everybody lived in, in the same house. So I had my grandparents live in the house. My other grandmother lived in the same house. I shared a room with my older brother and sister. And to me, that was, you know, it's like my kids complain. And I, I remember there was nine people to one bathroom. And that's just the way it was. And, and you did it. And, you know, you all, you had these kind of networks. So you went to Cuban doctors who didn't have a license here, but have been doctors in and, and Cuba. And, you know, you, you did, you know, my parents did what, what they did. But I think it was well into a long time before I think my parents accepted that they that, were staying. That they were staying, at, you know, at, at least for now. And, and then I lived in Bolivia for about, in La Paz, Bolivia, for about four years. Oh, you did, as a young and girl? And I did, as a young, which is the school I went to the longest, because we moved around, so I would oh, stay Oh, that's something years. I didn't know, and yes. you were in Bolivia. And that's where I read Don Quixote, and it was in an oh, American my. school. And what were you doing in Bolivia? Your parents? My father worked. My father had been in, an economist and an accountant, a CPA by trade. So he worked for and Bolivian And he worked company. for uh, U.S. aid. Wow. There, okay. As an undercover CIA operative. That's right. So, I that's do right. remember that. So, God. Of course, you know, as a kid, you didn't. Your father know. has his own story. And my dad right. had his own story. I knew your story. father, and your father was such a wonderful, lively, yeah. interesting man who had. He was so proud of you. Oh, yeah. And your mother was so proud of you. I remember that reading we had for Chin Kiss King. They were both so excited about that. Yeah. And my, uh, my siblings always complained that his, he would keep the little clips of like the reviews, but nothing of theirs. You know, it was like <laughs> a big joke. So, and when my mom died, you know, he came to live with me. He didn't live with my other siblings. And I said it was because he knew he could fight with me. Had you ever thought about writing about your dad's life? I have. And when he, you know, he had that, his book, Train to Kill. Right. Um, originally, he had, I said, you, you need to write. Just write. Just get a draft down. He gave it to me. And I started telling him, well, you can't always tell a story chronologically and you have to build you know start where you do this and of course this just evolved into argument because I didn't know anything because you know as a parent you it's hard to see your child you know I have the same issue with my kids sometimes I'm giving financial advice to the people who least need the financial advice but anyway I said, you know, the best thing, and I told my siblings this, is I know somebody who's uh, work as a ghostwriter I really respect who has done it. And that's, and you know, we approached Carlos Harrison, who I had worked with at um, the Miami Herald, and they hit it off Beautiful. because Carlos is that kind of guy. How old were you when you discovered all this about your dad? I was, I started... Probably when I was 12 or 13 serving as a translator, although he, he was, he spoke English. I think he was more comfortable, you know, expressing first in Spanish and then listening translation. So either my older brother and, uh, or I would do the translation. So when he, 
had investigators ask about all his experiences and even other authors write about about it usually as i got older i was usually the one who who transferred. so that's when it first dawned and on that's you, that when this i started other, this other life was this going. other life where well i was this age and i was here and this was happening right. and i was merely doing whatever 14 year old or 13 year olds <laughs> doing totally oblivious to I've been reading and thinking a lot about Michael Andaje's book called Warlight. Have you ever read it? No. Oh, you really should, because it's about a basically a young boy and his sister who don't really understand what's happening to them post-World War II, and they discover really that their mother had a whole secret life as an intelligence officer, and the, how it affected them as kids as well which sounds similar to what you went yes, through with your yeah, dad and you do and it, it makes you um sensitive to to a lot of different things and and one of the things especially when i was a journalist and when i traveled many people outside of miami or even outside of florida view Miami Cubans as a kind of a monolithic homogenous group and they aren't and my father was very progressive probably somebody is a social democrat um it, you know he was not right wing or or republican in any way what unites them is feeling the feeling of anti-communism and anti-fascism. And anti-fascism. And, and the thing that comes out in all of your writing, Dulcinea, the Chin Kiss King, all of your articles, you know, all of your columns, is that sense of empathy. And I think I mentioned it before, but you have empathy toward people who are bullied, and you understand that. And that's why people like you are so important who have a voice to be able to help push back against people who want to bully those people, mm -hmm. I think. And, you know, I understand people who would feel different from, I mean, people within my family, people who, you know, decades long friendship. Am I going to allow this political division? No. A lot of times we just don't talk politics. Sometimes we debate. Sometimes we agree. Sometimes we're on opposite end. I really do think most people want the best for this country and for their own families. But that doesn't mean at the risk of them putting other people down or of putting other ideas down because it's really the, the depth and the richness of ideas that has made our country what it is. Most definitely. And I, I also, in talking to you now with, with this um, understanding that you have this connection to Spain, I understand now again why the story of Dulcinea would have been firmly rooted in your mind mm -hmm. as a young girl because you knew that your mother's family was all from and Spain. And my father's family. And your father's So both were from Spain. Yes, so both are point. from the Catalonia region there, and they have... In fact, I went in January to do research for my new book, but also to visit family, and I really wanted to go. I had uh, old photographs that I didn't... I couldn't identify the people. 
And I know there were two or three first cousins, uh, um, you know, one, one from my dad's side who was still alive and two from my mother's side. And they're in, in their 80s, well into their 80s. And if I didn't speak to them and at least show them, hey, do you know who these are? You know, who are they? How am I related to them? I was going to lose it. So tie the book to Catalonia then. So Dolsa is uh, from, from Barcelona. And I, I knew she was always going to be from Barcelona for various reasons. I figured, oh, this is a great excuse to, you know, go on another trip uh, there. And that's its own story. But Barcelona is the only city in Cervantes' works that figures not only prominently, but that he writes glowingly about. So I thought, why not? Let's say that he, you know, because we really don't know. Maybe he had some love affair there. And, you know, who's going to say? We don't know. You know, we really don't know. Well, you paint such a vivid portrait of Barcelona that clearly you did a lot of research. Oh, that. yeah. Yeah. I, I Talk about that. Yeah, I read probably at least two dozen books and about five or six Cervantes uh, biographies. So that helped me do a timeline of his life. So I was able then to create my story knowing when he was definitely in Barcelona, but also the, uh, there were sometimes years where nobody knew where he was. And then, you know, who knows, maybe he was in Barcelona. So that kind of allow, allowed it. I had applied to a Cintas fellowship in, at the end of 2019. And my plan was in early 2020, when I received uh, part of the money, was to go do research. And of course, we all know what happened in March 2020. But thanks to the internet, I was able to find a lot of things that, you know, old maps. Um, I found uh, diaries from a tanner. It was written in Catalan, and my Catalan is very rudimentary, but I kind of like was able to figure out. So that really informed a lot of the daily life that I, you know, the details that enrich a book that you can't get from, you know, reading reference books. A lot of the reviewers have been basically casting your Dulcinea in feminist terms. Uh, talk about that a little bit. To me, that was the, the surprise, uh, like a shock, because I never thought of I'm writing this feminist story. And uh, the first time was when my agent sent me the query letter she was sending out to to editors. So I don't know if that just catches on and they gob on to it because, you know, I always say in journalism, you just need one story and then all the other journalists react to that one story. Um, but I see how they view that because she she's reclaiming her life. I mean, she followed by choice and by circumstance, really, what her parents chose for her. Because she could have easily chosen to have a life 
of poverty <laughs> with this writer. But she, you know, that wasn't what she wanted. You know, she realized all these things. You know, she had her art. She had her gowns. She had her, you know, jewels and gems. So, you know, we, and some of us make those choices. She listened to your parents. Yes, you know. <laughs> so, you know, she she realizes that, and then she comes to view her life in a different manner. And, and she really was not happy with Cervantes for casting her the way. Right, exactly. Because making her look, you know, basically look powerless. Powerless and uh, with, you know, she was really a barmaid for all intents and In all of your research, did you ever get close to figuring out who the Dulcinea was in Don Quixote? No, the and it was Dulcinea. interesting because he had a daughter and he was estranged from this uh, daughter, and he and he had it out of wedlock. He married somebody who does appear, Catalina, and in my book, who was um, more than twenty years younger than he was. Uh, some scholars think that when he was soldiering in Naples and in Italy and through Europe, that he might have fathered other children they don't know, had had other affairs. But again, you know, he was like one of many. He wasn't an important person. So the, there are no records of that. Why do you think Don Quixote has um, persevered so long? Why do you think it's been part of our consciousness for such a long time? What is the pull of Don Quixote? I think it's the the thought of tilting at windmills, and it really is. And I wanted that to be, I knew two things about the book even before I started plotting that. Windmills would play a part in some scene, and they would have, part of the book would have to be a journey, as Don Quixote does. But I, I think, and this is true of Man of La Mancha, it's the dreaming the impossible dream. We all have that. Most of us give it up. Really, I mean, I think back. I didn't know you could be a novelist. I used to, in high school, this wasn't the only book. I used to name books and then write these, I guess you would call them synopsis, these two-sentence synopsis. And I kept a little notebook. And I of all the books you were going to write? Of all the books that I was going to wow. write. But I didn't think that. You know, I didn't even know you could go and study creative writing. I mean, it, this was just unimaginable to me because, you know, my father was a first-generation college graduate, my uncles, and they had all done the respectable things. So you saw it through an English teacher at school? Well, my my 11th grade English teacher told me, join, you know, why don't you join the school newspaper and, and write? You can write. You know how to write to do that. So, and then that was it. Dulcinea has been met with such amazing critical response, but also response from readers. We had a lovely event the other night. Yes. Uh, with the great Connie Ogle. Oh, yeah. She was Another wonderful. Miami Herald writer who also covered books for many, many for years. For many years, sitting across the aisle from me. And so. the two of you are engaged in a conversation as if, 
you were sitting across from the aisle <laughs> from each other again. And the humor and all of that was just beautiful to see. But for me, as a bookseller, what was so beautiful was to see the sense of community that came out around you because you are so beloved in this community oh, for everything that you've written and all that you've done. And to see everybody responding so beautifully to Dulcinea was um, was kind of why I like to do what I do. <laughs> and there's nothing like playing to a home crowd because you had, and I've mentioned this to you, you know, people from your childhood, people from high school, people you worked with. I think you, you had all, almost the entire newspaper staff. Yeah, so they, school. you know, our former executive editor, Mindy Marcus, came. From all, the Herald, yes. From but the also, Herald. Also from your high school. You had almost everybody yes. from your high school. And and there was all these high school friends. And it, you know, and it makes you, you almost, you know, I remember we were driving home and I told my husband, I said, Oh, it just makes me want to, you know, like write faster so I can have another one of these where you see all these people, you know, it's like little snippets of your life before before you, the present and in the past. And um, one of my daughters-in-law sent me a picture. And to me, this is my absolute favorite photo. And it was... Um, of one of my granddaughters who's uh, 10 years old, and she is by far the one who looks most like me, you know, and you, you met her, and she, somebody caught her pretending to be signing my book. Oh, that's so sweet. So I thought, oh my gosh, this is like, this is, you feel, this is the best. And, you know, I have my teenage grandchildren. I had them on TikTok putting my book cover, you've got to read this, my grandmother wrote this. I mean, nothing can be better than this. Nothing. Nothing can be better. Except if you will read just a little bit of Dulcinea for us. Sure. And the literary life. What I'll do is I'll read from, from the beginning be, uh, because it's kind of the shortest section. The chapters tend to be longer than I normally write. So this is the prologue. And it's uh, 29th of April, 1616, Madrid, in which I am where I should be at last. Much has been said about me, much written, and most of it such slanderous tripe, lies, deceits, falsehoods, a deflowering of the truth, of all the woes visited upon me by God and perhaps the devil himself, Having my reputation besmirched has been, if not the most painful or long-lasting, certainly one of the most confounding. I've done nothing to deserve this calumny except love a man who isn't my husband and never can be, a man who belongs to another. I loved him before the bittersweet elixir of fame, before I danced my first sardana or prepared my first palate with pain, and I've loved him as steadily as the Lobregat flows to the Mediterranean and as predictably as the budding of the king's trees in spring. This is why my carriage has stopped in front of an unfamiliar building on a strange street in a city foreign to me. I cannot move my feet, and my arms hang limply at my sides. Only my hammering heart is awake. 
However, I must rouse myself if I am to accomplish my mission. A secret release will lighten the heaviness of heart that has beset me so. Calle de Leon, the driver announces. Though small, the house possesses a respectable air, and this surprises me. Miguel has always lamented his financial situation. Yet the green shutters appear freshly painted and red geraniums fill the window boxes. Rose bushes bloom in a side garden. Suddenly, I'm startled by the neighing of a horse at the carriage window. Jaume has dismounted and appears eager to get on with the task at hand. He is accustomed to assuming control, and proof of this is how well he has overseen my late husband's affairs. Is this the address, he asked. I've never been here, but if it matches what I gave you, it doesn't look like anyone's home. He eyes the property as if sizing up an unwanted purchase. A dying man wouldn't be left alone, I say. Very well, who should I ask for? I hesitate, dread squeezing my throat, but manage to reply. I don't know anyone in the household except Miguel. Who shall I say has come calling? Me. Who else? Are you sure? He asks, doubt creasing his brow. Yes, most definitely. Is Jaume dallying? After all, he has escorted me here only after a considerable number of threats and simpering on my part. Though I originally intended to keep my journey from him, as he would have forbidden it in his high-handed way, I will concede that his presence has afforded me comfort these past few days. But there may be some objection, I finish for him. I understand, but there's not much I can do about that now. Just go ahead and tell the maid. We exchange a few more words, and I motion for him to move along. He turns on his heel and strides the short distance from Cobblestone Street to Stoop, taking the steps two at a time. A woman in a white cap answers his knock. A conversation ensues, but it's impossible for me to hear what is said. She closes the door. I'm left to wonder if we will be sent away, if the message delivered by courier last night will serve as an excuse to bar me from seeing Mikel. Shortly, Another woman appears at the entrance. She must be diminutive because neither her shoulders nor her head is visible, only the head of her black gown. Is it Miguel's wife, Catalina, or his niece, Constanza? Maybe his daughter, Isabel, who has mended their strange relationship during his illness. As my thoughts wander through a labyrinth of possibilities, the carriage doors flung open. She will see you now, Jaume says. She? Miguel's wife. Is he well? I ask, but I am too intent on the figure in the doorway to properly listen to the reply. Trepidation has unsettled my stomach. Since my eyesight is failing, I must content myself with a blurred image, though as I draw closer, her features take shape. Like the house, like the neighborhood, this wife is not what I imagined her to be. Her face is angular and plain, 
neither beautiful nor arresting. Details I note with satisfaction. She is several years younger than me, but her hair is already graying. You've traveled many leagues, Catalina says after introducing herself, all the way from Barcelona. I acknowledge her comment with a nod. I want to explain that her husband sent a letter requesting my presence, but I don't trust my voice to hold steady. It's as if from a great distance, I hear the clatter of hoofs down the street, smell the perfume of roses on a brisk breeze, feel the warmth of the spring sun on my head. I neither budge nor speak. An eternity passes. Come in. She opens a heavy wooden door wider. Come in. Though I've spent countless hours imagining all the possible scenarios of my arrival in Madrid, I'm not prepared for this encounter with my lover's wife. I turn to look at the armed guards watching over the carriage. Their sheathed swords and holstered pedreñas provide a measure of reassurance. Even the sour-faced driver, whip in hand, could impersonate death at a masquerade ball, a warning to those who might do me harm. As if plunging underwater, I narrow my eyes and hold my breath. I enter. A shaft of light cleaves the dim vestibule in half. I know not what I will say, and I know even less of what awaits me. So beautiful. Thank you. All of you have to read Dulcinea by Ana Vesiana Suarez to find out just what happens after that first encounter with Don Miguel's wife. That's right. <laughs> it's quite a story. And Anna, it's been lovely having you here. But I do have a question for you at the very end. For those readers who are asking themselves, must they read Don Quixote first before they read Dulcinea? What would you say? I would say you don't have to. It could be a companion if you want to struggle through it. And there are some very fine English translation. I would recommend Edith Grossman's, but it is absolutely not essential at all. And in fact, my agent said, you know, I've never gotten around to Don Quixote. Maybe this is the time I should do that. She hasn't. So it's not essential. She is, it is her own story in her own, in her own life. This is Dulcinea separate from Don Quixote. And that's the way I found it. And I think most of the people I know who've read it felt the same way too. I thank you and send you as much love as I have. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Mitchell. 